So I think it's a special privilege that today, as we are discussing the significance of the events at the cross, that we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I think that's an awesome coincidence, if you would, that the Supper, which is a sign and a seal of everything that Jesus did for us, all the benefits that he purchased for us, is presented here in the bread and in the cup that we get to partake in. That's, that's fantastic. Last week, we looked at how Jesus suffered, how he was rejected and how he suffered and how it was for us. Okay, and it was, I recall, a very somber message. I remember the songs that day fit perfectly. They fit perfectly, but it was a somber service, and rightly so. And today, we are going to be looking at the actual crucifixion of our Lord. So I could say it's going to be another somber message, and and it is. But at the same time, what I hope to show you is how everything that happened here, and all of its gore, and all of its vileness, was for you. And it's because of what happens here that we have hope and life at all. It was here, truly, where the judgment and the punishment that you deserved, that I deserved, was meted out and inflicted upon Christ, and where all your debts were paid. That's awesome. So, from last week to this week, what I want, if I can say it in a statement, what's it called when you make a statement and and like all the words start with the same letter? A liter- there, oh man, you can tell you're in school. That's awesome. Good job, Pierce. Pierce's teacher deserves a raise. <laughs> All right. The, the suffering of our Savior was a substitutionary satisfaction. Okay? The suffering of our Savior was a substitutionary satisfaction. Our Savior suffered, and the key, believe it or not, in modern circles, the key thing they want to get away from is that it was a substitutionary satisfaction, that something had to be done for us on our behalf. Jesus went to the cross in the place that we should have been. He suffered as a substitute for us. Because a satisfaction had to be made. We incurred a very real debt. And it had to be paid. People just don't get. In the ancient world and in other parts of the world, they believe that God is this angry, vengeful thing that must be placated. In our culture, the opposite extreme is the reality. We believe that God is basically Mr. Rogers. And he just wants to be your neighbor. And he just likes you. And he has no problem with you. The only problem he might have is if you're not happy with the way you are. The reality that is so offensive to the modern mind is that there is something desperately wrong with each and every one of us. And that incurs the wrath and the anger of God. And Jesus came to pay for it. He came to be your substitute because you and I, if we experienced the wrath of God, we would suffer forevermore. 
But because Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he could withstand the blast of God's wrath and arise three days later. Your sins have been paid. The debt has been paid. And the guilt and the shame is washed away. So, somber passage, a lot of significance. This is the crux of human history. Everything that transpired from the beginning of the universe pointed to this. Okay? So whether you believe in a big bang or if you're like me and you actually believe the Bible. Okay, that was a... From the creation of the universe, everything pointed forward to the cross. And subsequent to the cross, everything points back. This is the absolute center of history. Not necessarily center chronologically, but the center in terms of significance and meaning. Everything in history points to the cross, whether looking forward or looking back. So what is the significance? Well, I'm going to briefly walk through the passage because there's some details I think we need to look at. But then there are four key things that I want to touch on in our time together today. So looking at verse 21, they compelled a passerby. They've, they've just mocked him. They've, they've paid homage to him like they made a parody of his claim of the assertion that he's the king. They've mocked him. They've treated him up. They've dressed him like an imperial colors, an imperial garb. They have made an utter blasphemous mockery of our Lord. And they put his own clothes back on him, and they march him out. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all point out that they had that they compelled Simon of Cyrene, this passerby, to carry his cross, which would have almost certainly been the cross bar, not the entire cross. Uh, they, they typically would tie the, the cross beam to the, to the person and make them wander through uh, while they had a placard hanging around his neck with his charge. But the apostle John specifies that they had Jesus carry his cross. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke say they had Simon of Cyrene carry it. John says they had Jesus carry it. Oh, Christians, there's one of your contradictions. I don't know about you. Um, I, don't, I think that's one of those small things. Um, they've just scourged the guy. They have literally torn flesh from his body. He's weak physically. I'm almost positive that how it rolled is he started out carrying his cross. And then he collapsed. He couldn't continue. And at that point, they compelled Simon of Cyrene to carry it for him so they could get the show on the road, so to speak. No contradiction there. One, John is pointing out to what started out, which was him carrying his own cross, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are pointing out to the fact that there's someone of significance later who had to end up helping Jesus out. And Simon is significant. Mark is the only one who points out that his children were Alexander and Rufus because they must have been known by Mark's audience. If you remember from back at the beginning of the series, we talked about how Mark was basically writing down Peter's memories in Rome. Well, then there's no surprise that in Romans, written by Paul, Romans chapter 16, he mentions 
Rufus. So Simon's experience carrying the cross was life-changing enough that he passed this down to his children. And at least one of them, Rufus, was a believer in the church of Rome. So what happens here transforms the people who see it. So they, they have Simon carrying his cross. They make it out there to crucify him. And right before they crucify him, the Romans offer him wine mixed with myrrh. The, the Romans uh, would oftentimes mix myrrh, which was a, an essential oil, if you want to call it that. It had anti-inflammatory effects. And so it was kind of a painkiller. So as I was studying and reading how the Roman soldiers oftentimes would carry wine in their canteens that, were, that was laced with myrrh, I was reminded of what we do in the military. We pop ibuprofen. It's called ranger candy. You, get, you have so many aches and pains all the time that you just pop ibuprofen like candy. Now, they didn't have good shoes with good arch support. You know, their, their, their gear and equipment was heavy and it didn't, you know, wasn't nice and ergonomic. So they basically lived on wine that was laced with a pain-killing anti-inflammatory. And they could give it to people in Jesus' situation, not because they cared about easing his pain. No, they knew that if they dulled his pain, guess what would happen? He'd last longer. When they crucified someone, it was, it was not unusual for someone to linger for days. For days. They would sometimes, if they really wanted to make an example out of someone, they would build a slight, slight footrest where just the edge of the heel could rest on it. Just, just enough to give you just enough lift to take some of the strain off your arms so you could linger for up to a week. They turned it into an art form. But Jesus, whether it's because he doesn't want to dull his senses or whether they're offering him the wine in their continued mockery of him as a king, he doesn't want to play their game. For whatever reason, he doesn't take it. They crucify him, and everybody's mocking him. The passers-by, the priests, even the people on the cross on either side of him, they're mocking him. And they're busy there casting lots for his clothing. Now, I don't know about you. I, I know that it, it, John specifies that his tunic was of one piece. There was no seams. It was a pretty cool-sounding garment. It was like a priestly garment. No seams at all. But still, what use would you have for something that's blood-soaked? I mean, think about it. They, they, they put it on him after they scourged him. Well, this is real gross, so I'm not going to go into the details, but let's just say that they, had, that they could remove blood from clothing. And uh, after the service, if you want to know the method they used, I can tell you, but it's kind of gross. So. But still, that's why they were bothering with Jesus' clothing, because the blood wasn't an issue. They would just take it out of the clothing. Okay? So they crucify him. They're casting lots. And then it says that at the sixth hour, so he's on the cross for three hours, and then it gets dark. It doesn't say there's an eclipse. We saw an eclipse this week. And some of you went up to get in the, in the path of the totality and you saw how dark it got. But this wasn't for a couple minutes. This was darkness for three hours. 
from the sixth to the ninth hour. And it's during this period of darkness that Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and you may have wondered why when he's saying, Eloi, Eloi, my God, my God, why do they think that he's crying out for Elijah? It's because it was very common to shorten Elijah to simply Eli. Eli is what they would say, okay? Now, the, listen phonetically, the difference between Eloi and Eli is not that great, especially when it's coming from the mouth of someone who is dying. He's on a cross. He suffered catastrophic blood loss. In that position, his lungs would have been filling with fluid. He's dehydrating. He's been on the cross at least three hours when he says this. He's in agony. And so when it says he cried out with a loud voice, it really took a mustering up of his strength to have raised himself to speak because when your lungs were collapsed like that, famously, people who were crucified, they petered out and they got progressively quieter and quieter as they couldn't breathe. So Jesus really did a marshalling of his strength. But still, through the wheezing, can you see how perhaps Eloi would have sounded from a distance with all that clamoring like Eli? I can. So they misunderstood what he was saying. And then, of course, he dies. Now, this is a pretty grim picture. You know, he, Mark doesn't include any other statement of Jesus. There's no statement, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. There's no statement of concern for Mary, his mother. There's no statement of assurance to a penitent thief. In fact, in Mark's account, the thief has not repented. There's no statement of trust that into my hand, your hands I commit my spirit, nor is there a victorious cry of triumph. It is finished. The only recorded words of Jesus are, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the emphasis in Mark's account is on the mockery and the humiliation Jesus endures. And right there is where I think that Mark's account enables us to connect with Jesus' experience. Most of us, when we experience tragedy, when we experience hardship, when we experience suffering, we don't do so from the vantage point of triumph. All it feels to us is like we have been abandoned and we are alone. And so we can identify with a Christ who is abandoned and alone. And they go, they bury him. And at the end of chapter, verse 47, chapter 15, verse 47, the powers that be think Jesus is a problem of the past. He's dead, he's buried, the tomb is closed, issue done. It's all over. Or so they think. Of course, we know that the words of verse 47 that Mary, the two Marys, saw where he was laid are, are going to lean us to what happens a couple days later, three days later. So they can't say that they just simply went to the wrong tomb because they observed where Jesus was laid. So a grim, bleak passage. 
I want to talk about four things that are of special significance for the fact that our suffering Savior was a substitutionary satisfaction. First, I want to focus on the scorn. Verses 29 through 32 highlight all the scorn heaped upon Jesus. Three groups of people are characterized as scorning him. The passers-by, okay? When they would crucify people, they sought out places of public access. They, the point of crucifixion was to make an example. So maximum humiliation. And so the passers-by are mocking him. They know his claims, you who would destroy the temple the leaders, he saved others. <laughs> Notice how they don't question what he had done for others. He saved others. There may be some of you sitting here with hard, impenitent hearts. Those religious leaders had more knowledge of Jesus and more first-hand perspective of Jesus than any of us. They did not doubt for a second his miracles. And it availed them not. It is possible to sit here knowing all about Jesus, believing that he did all these great and wonderful things. But if you in your hard, impenitent heart do not turn to him. You are no better off than these priests. And of course, the criminals on either side. Mark doesn't record that one of them repents because what he wants to convey is that everybody, everybody is scorning Jesus, mocking him, ridiculing him, rejecting him, shaming him. The assumption is that God has himself abandoned him, that God himself has rejected him, and therefore every one of his grandiose claims was up in smoke and a joke. And so they heaped it upon him. If he was truly a miracle worker, he'd miracle himself off that cross. <laughs> That's their perspective. The irony in all this is that it was Jesus staying on the cross. It was Jesus staying up there, receiving all that scorn that was in fact demonstrating God's approval of him. Hebrews 12, 2 says that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, that he despised its shame. When it says that he despised its shame, he means that, that, that he counted it as nothing. That's why he didn't respond back. He didn't play their games. He suffered for you, for the joy that was set before him. All these people assumed that like anyone else, he would save his own skin if he could. Yet he shed his so we could have ours saved. He was up there as a substitute. And what's up? truly ironic is right at the moment where all the powers that be think they're triumphant, where all the powers that be think they're showing what comes of a troublemaker, we learn that he was actually disarming 
all the powers that are against us and exposing them to shame by nailing our debt of sin right there on the cross. He exposed all your enemies to the shame and defeat that the world thought they were heaping on him. So, you know how in life you have moments of shame, rejection, ridicule, and people tell you you're not going to amount to something or that you can't be forgiven or that you're unforgivable or that if God really loved you, this wouldn't happen. Maybe you tell it to yourself. Jesus took all of that upon himself and utterly disarmed it all. He absorbed it. Boy, you and I, we could be free. He experienced the scorn of God that you and I will never have. And by his blood, we are healed. So the second thing then is the darkness. Verses 33 and 34 specifically. From the sixth to the ninth hour, it was dark. Okay, we experienced an eclipse. You know how creepy weird it is when the earth just kind of like goes dark. It's, it's weird. But it's cool. Well, this kind of darkness isn't cool. <laughs> okay? All throughout the Bible, the language of the sun going dark is the language of judgment. When God comes to judge, the lights go out. When God's judging Egypt, it goes dark. The metaphor, the, the language of darkness is all throughout the prophets. In Revelation, when God's coming to judge, the sun and the moon and the stars, they flee from the sky. When God judges, it goes dark. So what is happening here? It isn't that God's up there shedding a tear for Jesus. It isn't that the earth is sad that Jesus is dying. It is God showing up, judging Jesus. All the judgment that we deserve was experienced by Jesus. God shows up right there because Jesus is condemning sin in the flesh. God shows up because all of our sins were credited to Jesus. And God is judging him. He is literally experiencing the condemnation of God. Which is why the creed is right when it says he descended into hell. Not that he literally was on fire with brimstone. But he experienced the condemnation of God. And he experienced it for you and for me. And so we ask, why did Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, on the one hand, this whole scene is filled with allusions to Psalm 22. They, they nail him, his hands and feet are pierced, his enemies are encircling him, everybody's mocking him and taunting him, they're casting lots for his clothing, all that's in Psalm 22. But Jesus actually quotes the first sentence of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some think, and, and I'm not saying that it's wrong, some think that because he's dying, quoting the first sentence is meant to be shorthand for remem remembering the whole thing. 
And Psalm 22, it talks about the righteous sufferer who's been rejected by everybody. He feels abandoned by God, but he does not abandon hope because he knows eventually that God vindicates the sufferer. So maybe that's what Jesus is doing, wanting us to trigger a knowledge of the entire psalm, perhaps. But remember, he utters this, but when it's dark and the judgment of God has descended upon him, I really do believe that in that moment he was experiencing the abandonment of God. That God was present in judgment. And that was for you and for me. So there's no debt left to pay. The Roman Catholics get it so wrong when they say that we have purgatory where we have to pay satisfaction for the sin that Jesus' blood wasn't sufficient for. There is nothing left to pay. Jesus' sacrifice, his substitute on your behalf, was sufficient to pay for all your debts. Then, of course, there's the curtain torn from top to bottom. They've been mocking his claims about the temple, but yet he stays on the cross, endures their, their mockery, and it's him staying there that renders the temple obsolete. The rending of that temple curtain is a is a literal depiction of the fact that now their temple is obsolete. Everything that was going on in the holy place, all where the, where the atonement and propitiation was made, it's torn open. It's not a secret anymore. As Hebrews tells us, we now have confidence to enter the holy places through the blood of Jesus Christ. He's our new and living way. You can access God the Father, and the throne of God directly through Jesus. No more sacrifices. No more rituals. You can go to God through Jesus. That's awesome. And then, of course, the confession of verse 39. The Roman centurion sees, and it says he saw the way in which Jesus died. And that's what changes him. Now, remember, the centurion would have been there. He's the captain of the guard. He would have been there while they're beating him. He would have been there while they were dragging him out. He was was there the whole time. And there's something about the way Jesus handles himself, what he says, the cosmological phenomenon that are going on around him. And he cries out, surely this man was the son of God. Now, Jesus has been referred to as the Son of God a few times in this book. Once by Mark himself, the author, at the beginning of the book. Twice by God, when God addresses Jesus and then the disciples, this is my Son. Twice by demons. But this is the first time a person in the book has recognized Jesus as the Son of God. And lo and behold, it's a despised Roman centurion, a Roman officer. This here is a a foretelling of what's about to happen, where dreaded, despised enemies become actual members of the family. He recognizes and confesses Christ. Even in the Apostles' Creed, which we cited today, the the most basic assertion we make about Jesus Christ is He's God's Son. It's the most basic element of understanding who Christ is, is to recognize that He is the Son of God. And so, Right here, we see a foretelling of how the gospel is going to go into the world. 
and everything that Jesus has just done is going to take away all the enemies, all the opposition, and eventually make family members out of former foes. Jesus came to die as a substitute so that you and me, who were once like the centurion, by nature or by personal disposition, and we are now brought into the family, Jesus and his death accomplished so much. But understand this one little thing. He died as a substitutionary satisfaction for our sins. And because God accepted his sacrifice as sufficient, you and me, we have life everlasting. Let's pray.